Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had come, when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the, in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about two hundred cubits, dragging the net, of, the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, "Um, Who are you? knowing that it was the Lord. then Jesus, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Thus assuredly I say to you, When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that His testimony is true, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books 
that would be written. Amen. And may the Lord be glorified by the reading of his word. Before I start into this, I'd like us to pray for a moment. So pray with me. Father, thank you for giving us your word. As John wrote at the end of the passage that Brian just read, there would be no end to the writing of books in order to contain all the things that you, Lord Jesus, did on this earth. And I pray that as we consider these things in this chapter, that you will show us truth and speak to each one of us. Let people hear from you, not so much remembering my words, but hearing from you and remembering what you lay on their hearts. And I ask, Father, that we would be changed in some way, that we would go forth from this service excited to be your children and to live for you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are at the end of what has been a little over nine months of going through the gospel according to John. And um, Bob has had this theme that we presented every week as we've gone through it, that there's two main purposes of the gospel of John. Number one, the deity of Jesus, that the Son of God who took on flesh became the Lamb of God in order to take away the sin of the world. And that came to a climax a few weeks ago for us in the book of John when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished because the work of justification of him taking on the wrath of God so that we might have a way to be forgiven was completed. There was no more work needing to be done. And then the second purpose is the unity of the church, that we may be one. In Jesus' prayer, the night that he gets arrested, uh, before they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's in John chapter 17, he prays asking that the Father would make his disciples one, that they would be united. Because in being united, it would help convey to everyone else the deity of Christ, and that they have a Messiah that they need to submit to. So that's why we have the arrows back and forth. The deity of Jesus leads to his people being united, and the unity of the church leads back to others understanding the deity of Jesus. So we've come through that, and over the last couple of weeks, Bob has preached through chapter 20 where the resurrection occurred, and we come now to chapter 21, and I just have a couple of background things that I want to go through before we plunge more into it. The first thing is the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is this disciple? The phrase first popped up in chapter 13, which was during the Lord's Supper. Jesus had said, Someone, one of you disciples is going to betray me. And Peter, looking at the, at the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was leaning against Jesus, they, were reclined, they would recline, on the, I guess, on the floor around the table to eat in those days. And so they're reclining in a circle around this table, and one of them is up against Jesus. And that's the disciple whom Jesus loved. The phrase also came up in chapter 19, 20, uh, 19 where Jesus on the cross speaks to the disciple whom he loved, asking him to take care of Jesus' mother. Uh, and it was in chapter 20, and then it's also twice in the passage that Brian just read. 
the writer is using this phrase to avoid naming himself. That's what becomes clear. And there's a few other phrases that he uses that are similar. Sometimes he says, another disciple. One of those is over in John 18. Um, John 18 is during, after he's been arrested. And in verse 15 and 16, they, Peter and this disciple have come to where, uh, to where the high priest's building is. And it says there in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Now here this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is not used. But this other phrase of another disciple and the other disciple is used there not naming who it was, but the person who it was had eyewitness view of the trial and what was being conducted in regard to Jesus. In um, chapter 20, if you turn back one page in your Bible, this is the, the account of the Resurrection Day foot race. Um, Mary had come to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And starting in verse 2, it says, she says, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, boisterous Simon Peter, boom! He just goes right in. Following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. So this phrase, the other disciple, he's using that of himself. And we find out that this is the writer at the end of the passage, which Brian already read it. He identifies that he is this disciple whom Jesus loved. And so we know that the writer is an eyewitness. He's one of the chosen 12. Judas has betrayed Christ, so he's out, down to 11. He's one who has been with Jesus throughout these three years. Now, we believe that this is actually John, and we have uh, several reasons for that that are internal and external. Internal... You see in, um, in chapter 21, verse um, 7, the first instance of the two in this chapter, the disciple whom Jesus loves said to Peter, it is the Lord. There's only seven disciples here, and he's named four of them back in verse 2. Yeah, thank you. The, the four that he doesn't name are the two sons of Zebedee, which is an interesting phrase in and of itself. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when we hear of the sons of Zebedee, it's already, always James and John, the sons of Zebedee. He's dropping the names, but needs to let you know it's the sons of Zebedee. But he doesn't name James and John. Um, But we know that this disciple in verse 7, who we find out in verse 20 is the author of the gospel account, he's one of these four, either one of the two sons of Zebedee or one of the other two that are not named. Further, we know that he's got close access to Jesus, even among the disciples. We have the John 13 case where he's leaning up against Jesus. We have the John 
18, no, 19 case where Jesus puts his mother in the care of this disciple. And so he's got to be in the inner circle. Well, from the other three gospel accounts, we know that the inner circle is Peter, James, and John, right? Jesus takes them with him for the transfiguration. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes those three further along than the rest of the disciples. He challenges them specifically to pray for them. And, um, and so it seems it's got to be one of those, those two. It can't be Peter because Peter's talking to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that would defeat the purpose of the phrase because he's given the name Peter. So it's got to be James and John, one of those two. James was executed um, by Herod in 44 AD. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12, the beginning of Acts 12. So it could actually plausibly be James, but he would have had to write the gospel really early. And all Bible scholars, including the most conservative who date things the earliest, don't think it was written that early. And that leaves us John. So that's internal evidence from the scriptures. Um, external evidence, we have the writings of, uh, of numerous uh, church fathers. John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp then discipled Irenaeus. So a grandson in terms of discipling, just two generations later. He wrote that John was the author of this gospel. And there were several others. One called Polycrates was um, a contemporary of Irenaeus, wrote the same thing. Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria. So we have external evidence where the early church leaders said it was John. So anyway, that's background. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is a list of appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. This is from the resurrection through the ascension. And I apologize for that glitch up there. But by my count, there's 10 of them. And uh, if any of you are the sort who really like to dig into this stuff, I can give you this list. You can tell me if you come up with some others. You can see how I've got passages where I'm linking accounts from the different Gospels together in some cases. You might come up with more than 10. But... Separate from any opinion of mine, it seems really clear just from Scripture. There, there are at least these ten appearances of Jesus from his resurrection until his ascension, where his ascension is the tenth one. Now, I have ordered them in what I think is the order, so that's my opinion, the ordering of it. And you might disagree to some extent. But the first four uh, occur on Resurrection Day. He appears to Mary Magdalene. In Matthew's count, we find out there's another woman with him, and they both see Jesus. Uh, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple on the road to Emmaus. Then Simon, which is Peter, sees him. This is a case where the fact of it is given to us by both Luke and Paul, but we don't get any other details, which is interesting. And then in the evening of that, of that resurrection day, he meets with 10 of the 11 disciples. Thomas is not there. And Bob preached on this last week. That sets up the meeting eight days later when Thomas is there. Both of those are covered in John chapter 20. Part of why I put this up here, uh, there's really two reasons. When we are talking about this passage of the seven disciples fishing in Galilee, this is after at least these first five occurrences, uh, based on uh, something Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I've put the two Galilee occurrences, the second Galilee occurrence, by the way, is the Great Commission over in Matthew 28. I've put those after the two that, um, that 
Paul tells us about, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, and then he also appeared to James, which is not James, the son of Zebedee. That's James, Jesus' brother, who had not been a believer in him as the Messiah until after the resurrection. So I put it after that. It could be that it goes before it. But, so that's one point, is there have been a number of appearances before we get to this one in John 21. The second thing that I want to point out, when we get to verses 15 to 17, where Jesus asks Peter basically the same question three times in a row, and the last time Peter's grieved that Jesus keeps asking him this question, I have heard it preached sometimes that the three questions correspond to Peter's three denials of Christ. And that could be, that could be. I am not going to teach that today. If you've heard that taught and you got good stuff out of it, that, that's fine. The reason that I back away from that some is because of looking at this. Peter has already seen Christ at least three times since the resurrection, before the account we're reading about. One was him one-on-one with Jesus on the day of the resurrection. The second was with, the other, with all the disciples except Thomas. And then the third is eight days later when Thomas is with them. Those have all occurred. And so th- this part is speculation on my part. But I think it's significant that two different sources tell us that Jesus appeared to Peter just the two of them by themselves on the day of the resurrection. Um, I have a feeling that that and then the other two, the whole issue of him having denied Christ three times has already been addressed and resolved before we get to this passage in John 21. I find it hard to believe it hasn't already been handled. Probably handled right up here when they meet by themselves. And Again, this is my speculation, but what I'd like to offer as an example, as a parallel thing, in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this wonderful scene between Aslan and Edmund, and it's portrayed really well in the movie, if you've seen the movie. But Edmund has betrayed his brother and two sisters, and he's he's fallen in with the witch, which represents Satan, and he's been a hostage of hers. And an overnight raid of Aslan's forces has rescued Edmund. So Peter, Susan, and Lucy, the brother and the two sisters, wake up that morning, and they see Aslan up on halfway up a mountainside talking to Edmund one-on-one. And so they realize he's been rescued. And one of the girls, I think it's Lucy, even yells out, Edmund! And so Aslan and Edmund, they look towards the brother and the two sisters, and then they come towards them. And Aslan says, we will talk no more of this. And it's a wonderful picture of Christ's forgiveness of someone. There's no more need to discuss this. It's so the brother and the two sisters just welcome Edmund, hug him, ask him if he wants some breakfast, and there's no more talking about how... He had betrayed them. Now, I don't know if that's what's happened right here. This is obviously my speculation. But if Jesus has appeared to Peter by himself, and then these other two times, I think that's already probably been handled. So that's part of why I show you this. So um, in Acts, at the beginning of Acts, 
Luke says an interesting thing. He, I'm going to read you the first few, few verses in Acts 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he, chosen, whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If I go back, these are all happening during those 40 days that Luke is talking about in Acts chapter 1. And in verse 3, he says, many infallible proofs, or some translations say convincing proofs. He's giving proof that he is the risen Jesus Christ. So when we come to John 21, it's interesting to me... um, John says in verse 1, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. I think as we go through John 21, there's at least three distinct ways that Jesus is showing them that I, the risen Jesus, am the same Jesus that you knew on the other side of the cross. And so the first one is the miracle. The situation is that... Seven of them are here. We don't know where the other four disciples are. Now, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, there's a a phrase there that says they gathered at the mountain that Jesus had designated. So when when you read the other accounts, the women are the ones who tell them, you need to go to Galilee. When Jesus designated this mountain, we don't know, did he tell the women that also? He could have told the disciples in those two times he met with them in the upper room there in Jerusalem. But they know there's this mountain that they're headed to to meet Jesus. Now, I don't know if, uh, if four of the disciples have gone into town to go f- to get some supplies or whether they just all decided, hey, let's meet at the mountain, and seven of them have stayed together and the other four haven't got there yet. But they're on the, on the beach on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. By the way, the Sea of Tiberias, that's the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Tiberias is a city on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, which is why it's being called Sea of Tiberias, you can enter in your map application on your phone, Tiberias, Israel, and you'll find it. It's a real place. And, and so they're on the shore there somewhere in that area, and I think they're waiting. Now, they're, they may be waiting for the other four disciples to show up. Then they're going to go to the mountain Jesus designated. They may be waiting for Jesus to appear to them and find them in Galilee. They may not yet know which mountain to go to. That could be something that Jesus tells them during the meal in this chapter. I don't know. Don't know. We know that they knew what mountain to go to by the time you get to Matthew 28. So Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. And up he goes to go fishing. He's returning to what he knows. Fishing had been his profession, his livelihood. It's what he's good at. It's a good way to make money. It's his livelihood. This is not fishing like us recreationally go fishing. I don't, well, I don't know if they were hungry and they wanted to go get food. This is how to go get it. Um, or whether let's fill some time, we can make some money. Not sure what's going on exactly there. But this is not like you just taking a break and going to go fish in a pond. This is fishing to catch it as a professional fisherman would do. At least three of the seven of them have been professional fishermen. That would be James and John and Peter. Andrew may be one of the other two unnamed ones, which is uh, Peter's brother, but also a fisherman. 
The second thing to note is that Peter is a leader. He says, I'm going to go fishing. And the others say, okay, we'll come too. They follow him. That's going to come up again later. So they fish all night and they catch nothing. Um, And then the surprise happens. This man, who they don't know who it is, comes up on the shore, asks them, do they have any food? Some accounts say fish instead of food. Have you caught anything? Nope, nothing. Fished all night. And he says, cast your nets on the right and you'll find. And so they do, and they get a huge haul. We find out in verse 11, it's 153 large fish. It's too much for the boat. In verse 11, we find out they have to drag the net up onto the shore. They can't get all these fish into the boat. And this is going to be familiar to them. It's going to ring a bell because a very similar miracle has happened. So look with me over in Luke chapter 5. Turn over there in your Bible. I want to read through this. Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. Now it happened, as, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for the same lake. Gennesaret, Tiberias, Galilee. It's the same place. And saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, if you piece together um, the things happening across the four Gospels, I'm pretty convinced that Jesus has already met Simon and Andrew and probably John before this. And you can read about it in John chapter 1. I think he's already met them. They have followed him for a little bit, and they've gone back to fishing. That's my... That's what I think from trying to harmonize uh, things in Scripture. Um, in verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, stop, he had stopped speaking to the crowds that he was teaching. He said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So I want to list here for you things that are in common between these two. Now that account in Luke 5 was sometime in the first year of Jesus' ministry. So that's two to three years before what we're reading about in John 21. Two to three years before. But look at the commonality. They've gone back to fishing. They fished all night without catching anything. Jesus says, cast the net one more time. And they catch an incredible quantity of fish, more than one boat can hold. In Luke 5, they had two boats and they filled them both and they're about to sink. In John 21, where we are, it's more than they they can't even get it in the boat. And they end up having to pull the net up onto the shore. So these things are in common. And John the disciple whom Jesus loved, realizes it. 
in the miracle, he realizes that that man on the beach has got to be the Lord, and he says it. And then Peter, boisterous, plunging ahead Peter, puts his outer garment back on and jumps into the sea. What a, what a, a marvelous phrase. He plunges into the sea, reading between the lines. He's just so eager to go to Jesus. In Luke 5, he was so floored by the miracle and overcome with his sin that he wanted Jesus to go away. But time has passed, years have passed. If I'm right in what I said earlier, the resolution and forgiveness from him denying Christ three times has passed. And he plunges in in eagerness to get to his Lord. They've come to Galilee to see Jesus again. So he's off. The rest of them come in the boat and... um, Pull, it ashore, pull the fish ashore. Uh, well, actually, Peter goes and pulls the fish ashore. But Peter wants to be with Jesus. Now, what I want you to see in this is that the risen Jesus that they're seeing here is the same Jesus who does miracles. All his miracles before his death and resurrection. Here he does a miracle. In all the other accounts, you can read into there some miracle-type stuff because he appears and he disappears. That's pretty miraculous. But in terms of the kind of things he's done before the crucifixion, this is our one account. Now, Luke tells us in Acts that he does many convincing or infallible proofs. There could have been other miracles that he did, but this is the one that we're given. He does a miracle and shows he has authority over nature. He has supernatural power. That's got to be a ding-a-ling-a-ling-ring-a-bell thing if they need convincing proofs. By the way, we are told in Matthew's account when they're at the mountain and Jesus gives them the great commission of making disciples, it says there that there were some who still doubted. So if you put yourself, if they were doubting then, they're probably still doubting here. If you put themselves in your, yourselves in their shoes, they saw him killed. And buried. And he's risen from the dead, and this is mind-blowing, and they're trying to sort it out. I can't, I don't fault them that they're still trying to figure it out. A miracle after the resurrection is a big box checker or further infallible proof in helping them get past those doubts. All right, so we move on to the meal. Jesus is already cooking breakfast when we get to this in verse 9, when they come ashore. And it's significant that he already has a fire of coals going with fish laid on it and bread. Not the fish that they've caught. Fish he's provided somehow. And so he says to them in verse 10, bring some of the fish which you have just caught, so they can add to that. I don't know that they need it anymore. It doesn't actually say that they brought fish, but they probably did added it to what he was cooking. And I I draw kind of a a thing from this that's significant, I think, which is that Jesus doesn't need our help. This is important to remember. Jesus does not need our help. But in his love for us, he invites us to join in with what he's doing. And so... I'm drawing that from this picture of what happens here with the meal. This is not what the scripture says, but it just occurs to me. It's illustrated here because he's already got fish cooking on a fire. 
didn't the scripture just say he just walked up? This could be another miracle. How did he get the fish and the fire going that fast? You know, maybe he had been doing it the way we would do it for a while and brought the fish with him. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say that that is a miracle. But he's providing for them. He's thinking of what their needs are ahead of time, which is something that he had been doing. Uh, he probably participates in the meal with them. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that he eats here. But if you want to see that, Luke 24 is a case where he explicitly eats. That's significant because a ghost doesn't eat. In a hallucination, your hallucination doesn't eat the physical food that you eat. In a dream type thing, you might think you're eating and the other thing, person that's in the dream might eat, but you're not eating real food. Maybe that's the reason he says, bring some of your fish. Fish they've actually caught that's real food is being eaten. I mention this because skeptics want to say that these guys are, had a big hallucination, a group hallucination. I had that list of 10 up there. Skeptics want to write those things off. And some of their reasoning is just outlandish. A ghost doesn't eat. A hallucination doesn't share in your meal and eat the physical food that you're eating. Jesus is here eating with them. So this is, this is significant. He's eaten a lot of meals with them before. So it's another thing where they're seeing Jesus doing with them something he had done many times before his crucifixion. And here's my big takeaway from this. The risen Jesus is the same Jesus who provides. He knows and cares for us. And he invites us into what he's doing. That's the red part. We have to keep in mind he doesn't need our help. In love, he's letting us participate. Okay, so moving on to the conversation that starts in verse 15. Um, I talked a little bit earlier about agapio, sacrificial love. I, I, before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the these. In the first question that Jesus says, he says, Peter, well, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, that love is agapio, but I want to pause and think about the these. To me, there's a few possibilities. What is he talking about? One might be the other disciples. Do you love me more than these other disciples? Because they're there on the beach together. Another possibility is he's talking about the quality of Peter's love. Do you love me more than these disciples love me? And the third one is he might be talking about the fish. The fish are there somewhere next to where they've, he's got this fire of coal and they've eaten breakfast. They're on the beach. They haven't taken time to do anything with them other than whatever ones they added to the fish he already had on the fire. Uh, so I'm putting these in rephrased questions because that might, number two particularly, might have been confusing. If I put them in rephrased questions, number one would go like this. Simon, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? So it's about who do you love the most? Is it me? By the way, in the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, when Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul... That love is agapeo. We're supposed to sacrificially love God as he loves us. In Matthew, when Jesus quotes from that, he uses agapeo. Same word. 
Simon, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? That's a very plausible thing that he might mean. The second one, Simon, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? I don't really think that that's likely what's going on here. It just doesn't, from what we see of the Lord, I don't think... I don't think he's trying to tee up some competition. Can you love me more than than Peter more than John loves me, or something like that? I I don't really think that, but I have it up there because it's a possibility. And then the third one, Simon, do you love me more than you love the fish? Now, let me point one thing out to you. So, verse fifteen, when the question starts, says, "So when they had eaten breakfast." Now, I think they actually, Jesus and Peter started walking away. They took a walk. And the reason I say that is because in verse 20, after that main part of the conversation takes place, 20 says, Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Well, they must be walking for John to be following. By the way, John's probably following pretty close because he's overhearing the conversation. That's why he can be an eyewitness and write all this. So I think they have walked away from the breakfast, and it's easy to picture as they're leaving where the fire was and they ate breakfast, it's just easy to picture they're walking right past the net full of fish. Jesus only says it in the first question, the more than these. Do you love me more than these? So... I think these are the possibilities. I'm going with number three. Because for Peter, I think the fish represent his profession. I said some of this earlier. His livelihood. It's what he's good at. It's what he knows what to do. Now, it isn't analogous to his denial of Christ that they went fishing. It's not sin that they did that. I think they were waiting. Don't know if they're waiting for Jesus to appear. I don't know if they're waiting for the other four disciples to come. I don't know if they got to Galilee a few days earlier than they're supposed to meet Jesus at the mountain, so they're killing some time. Whatever the reason is, they're waiting. And it's easy to see that Peter maybe got bored. I'm going to go fishing, and the others follow. But when he's idle, Peter turned back to what he knew well as a career as a way to make money. Now, now this, is, this is my speculation, okay? But I'm, I'm reading the scripture, trying to make sense of it. You could go with that number one. The, I think you could go with one or three, and you could go in a good direction and draw some things out of it. But I'm going with three. And so Jesus is wanting really to know, do you love me more than this career that you've had? And that fits because what is he calling him to do in these questions? Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. He's calling him to a different occupation that's going to take a lot of his time. So I think Jesus is challenging Peter to lead in caring for the church. Now, at that point, the church was super small. We're told in Acts 1 that there's about 120 of them gathering together to pray in those, that 10-day period from Jesus' ascension until the Holy Spirit comes upon them and gives them power to speak in other languages. So it's small, 120, but it's going to grow. It's good. <laughs> the, 
the doors are going to get knocked off the thing with 3,000 believing in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And they're up to about 5,000 in Acts 4. And then it keeps growing after that. Um, So let's go through these questions. So Jesus says, uh, Simon, do you love me more than these? He uses agapeo, which I was talking about agapeo and phileo in the Advent Reflection. Peter replies in verse 15, Lord, you know that I love you, but he uses phileo. I think this series of questions stems from Peter's choice of words. If Peter had come back and said agapeo, it may have just been one question. But he says phileo. And then it proceeds after that. In verse 16, Jesus says the same thing, but without the more of these, more than these. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he uses agapeo again. And Peter again says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but he uses phileo. And and so at this point, well, actually, I'll finish getting these up there. The third one, Jesus switches, which is significant, and says, Simon, do you love me? Using phileo. And then Peter is distressed, verse 17 says, that Jesus keeps asking him. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you and uses phileo again. So we got two agapios by Jesus and one phileo. We got three phileos by Peter. And I did talk about this in the Advent uh, reflection, but I I, want to mention just a couple other things here. Um, In John 13, verse 34 and 35, again in the uh, the long conversation he has with the disciples on the night that he's going to be arrested... Jesus said, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. All of those loves are agapeo. So we're supposed to love as he has loved. Peter knows this. But he responds with phileo. And I think if we put ourselves in Peter's shoes... So, Nadia, you talked about a panic attack. I think most of us might have a panic attack if Jesus says, do you love me? Using agapeo, do you sacrificially love me as I love you? And if it's a few days after he hung on a cross because he loved you, what am I going to say? And if you add to that that you denied him three times, even though... He's already met with you and that's been resolved, but you know you did that. What are you going to say? I think Peter, for all his type A personality, his quick decisiveness, his bold being out there, Lord, tell me to come walk on the water, and he's out of the boat. You know, uh, John stops at the tomb and looks in but doesn't go, but Peter, boom, right on in. For all of that, We're seeing real honesty here. I I can't use that word, Jesus. So he says phileo. And by the way, phileo is a healthy, good love. Brotherly affection is a good love. I'm going to show you some verses on that in a minute. But I want you to just dwell here and think about it. Because if we put ourselves in our shoes... I don't know that any of us would come back and say, yes, Lord, I agape you. We want that. We want to aspire to loving like that. 
but do I really? And so Peter, with his history, he's being honest. I phileo you. I can't stretch that far to say agapeo. So Jesus is meeting Peter where he is at brotherly love. Now, so the motivation for the mission of caring for the church, the motivation is love. But I want to show you a few verses and step through some here on um, to show you where phileo is used in other places in a very positive way. Uh, the first one is John 5.20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. There's other verses that use agapeo about the Father and the Son, but this one uses phileo, and I'm puzzled over why, why phileo. Well, the context here is not about sacrifice. It's about sharing. Letting someone else in on what you're doing. Now, this is the father and son and their triune God nature of being three persons but one God. It's a head herder. But phileo is here because the father is showing him all of what he does and inviting him in to do the same things in John 5. Um, in John eleven three, the sisters, this is in the passage about Lazarus. At the very beginning, they send... Message to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, the one you love is sick, the one you phileo. They're talking about brotherly love, affection. You care very much for him. And in their mind, they're not viewing it probably as much sacrifice to come back and be here. And as we find out later from Mary, they think he wouldn't have died because Jesus would have healed him. So now you think about that. Is it sacrificial love when you heal someone? Well, if you're God who has power to do all kinds of miracles, you may not view it as he needs to be sacrificial. He can just make it happen. I talked about phileo earlier with the example from... Uh, so, John, you, I don't think you were here, but I used the example of the bacon and the um, bananas from yesterday morning. Um, another example that comes to my mind is if I have this big jar of M&Ms. How many of you like M&Ms? Raise your hand if you have a big jar of M&M's, and I phileo you guys. And I got lots of M&M's. Help yourself. Everybody can have some. I can have some. You can have some. I'm sharing my M&M's with you. There is some cost to me because I could have not shared them, and I could have eaten them myself for maybe a week to come. You know, but, but except for that little minor thing, you know, I'm sh- I got plenty, so I'm sharing with you. I could see how you could view Christ with supernatural power, Miracles are like M&M's for him. He can do them and there's not any big sacrifice. Okay? I don't know if I'm right about that, but the phileo is what's used here in terms of coming back and keeping him from dying. And it's also used um, at the end of the passage. Well, this goes on to another one. But at the end of chapter 11, when Jesus, not at the end, but later on, when he weeps because of Mary's grieving over Lazarus, the, the scripture says there that the other people, the Jews, said, see how much he loves him. And they use phileo when they're talking about Jesus' affection for Lazarus. That's what they're perceiving that he's weeping because Lazarus is dead. I think he's weeping because of the grief that Mary's expressing. 
Um, in John sixteen twenty seven, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. That is phileo. phileo. So these are positive examples of phileo. But in John fourteen twenty one, we have agapeo, which is in blue. Phileo is in red, agapeo in blue. It, he who had, this is a verse I read earlier. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and manifest myself to him. So you see both being used. There's some overlap. So it's not that phileo's bad. It's actually probably the second highest form of love in the list of Greek words that I told you in the Advent Reflection. There's like eight of them. Um, okay, so now in, in other parts of, of the New Testament... Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. If you don't phileo the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is very interesting because in the same chapter earlier, he says, let all that you, be, that, let all that you do be done with love, agapeo. So all that you do should be done with sacrificial, sustained love for one another. But when he gets to 22, he's put phileo in there. Um, also in 16, at two verses later than the one in 22, he says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He's talking about his own love. Why these word choices? Well, in me just thinking, why, why would he make the distinction? The one in verse 14 is about how you love one another. And that, if you've been growing in Christ, should be becoming loving like Christ loves. John 16 13, verse 34 and 35, the new commandment. We should be loving each other, agapeo. And he knows that he loves them that way in verse 24, so he uses agapeo. But in verse 22, I think he's talking about the distinction of whether you're a believer or not. If you don't at least phileo the Lord Jesus Christ, the brotherly affection after he's died on a cross to pay for your sins, kind of like in thankfulness, in gratitude, having that brotherly affection for the Lord, then you must not be a believer. Let him be accursed. Now, that's me reading into it some. But my point here is that in this one chapter, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses them both, and he uses them in a positive way. It's not negative to phileo the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so brotherly love and sacrificial love overlap. We should definitely love one another with brotherly love, but we should be rising to sacrificial love. I think, I hope you understand the picture that I'm painting. Sacrificial love, you need the Holy Spirit working in you. And you have to grow in it. It's a maturing thing to love like that, where you sacrifice for the good of someone else. So, um, I want to show you just a couple more verses. I think Peter got this. So in John 21, 15 through 17, he's honestly saying phileo, phileo, phileo. And Jesus meets him where he is. Phileo, feed my sheep. He's giving him the mission, even though Peter can't yet rise to say agapeo. But years later, when Peter, Peter writes First Peter, he's got it. In verse 22 says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, that's phileo, 
agapio one another fervently with a pure heart. You're starting in the fellowship with phileo, but we need to agapeo. We need to, we need to love with sacrificial sustainment fervently from a pure heart for one another. In 1 Peter 1, verse 7 and 8, he uses it again in picking it up in the middle. It says that the genuineness of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. If you untangle that phrase, he's saying you love Christ with God-like love. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood. But he doesn't use phileo there. With the term brotherhood, it would seem natural, but he uses agapeo. Agapeo, the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. See, he knows and remembers what Jesus said about the new commandment from John 13. We are to agapeo one another, love each other as Jesus has loved us. And by that, all people will know that we are his disciples. But in John 21, we see Jesus meeting him where he is with brotherly love and affection. And so that's a starting point. And if you, if you find yourself struggling to love sacrificially, welcome to the club. You are a candidate to start growing with the Lord from that point. Brotherly love and sacrificial love, they overlap. They overlap in your experience as you grow in Christ. We definitely need love with brotherly love, but we need to grow into sacrificial love. Okay, so we're close to the end here. Uh, there's two other words that Jesus kind of changes in these questions. And the first one is to feed versus to shepherd or to tend. Um, in 15 and 17, he tells Peter, tend my lambs, tend my sheep, or feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Those are the words used in the various translations. I think feed is the best one. The Greek word is bosco, and it means to feed. Now, sometimes, so tend, if you have a translation that uses tend, my issue there is tend in our English vernacular can go kind of two ways. Tend can mean feed, which is why some translations have it there. But tend can also mean more like shepherd, where you are, it's not just that you're feeding, but you're keeping, you're protecting, you're providing for, taking care of the sheep is a little bigger thing that encompasses feeding. And so uh, Jesus uses both. In verse 16, he uses the, the, the different Greek word, which is the bigger picture, and so your translations either say shepherd or, or keep, or they might say tend there, because tend can go both ways. Um, the other one that he switches between in verse 15, he uses arneon, which means lamb, little lamb, lambs. And then he switches to probaton, which means sheep in verse 16 and 17, which is uh, both big and little, all of them, lambs being a subset of sheep. And um, so I think the way I think it, the best translations would be is feed my lambs in 15. Then 16, the clearest would be shepherd my sheep, or if you wish, keep my sheep. And 17 is feed my sheep. 
And the overall picture here is that the mission is to care for the church. He's calling Peter to care for the church. And there's an emphasis on teaching. The feeding would be analogous to teaching. In Sunday school, we were talking about 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, getting fed. Um, teaching from the, the leader viewpoint that Peter's being called to do is going to be a big aspect to that. And, um, and we see that reflected in the Great Commission. When you're going and making all disciples, when you're making disciples... Jesus has three participle phrases there. One is, as you're going, make the disciples. The second one is baptizing them, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the third is teaching them all things that I have taught you. Uh Uh-oh, I hit the wrong button, Mark. There we go, we're back. An example of this occurs in Acts 6, where the, um, they have the problem with the feeding of, the, of some of the, the Hellenistic Jewish women. And the, the, the 11 disciples say, it's not desirable that we should live the, leave the word of God to serve tables. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they're focusing on that as they shepherd the sheep. And so they delegate it, and the church comes up with the first deacons. So, takeaway here is that this risen Jesus is the same Jesus who loves and challenges. Jesus had challenged them in conversation and in questions and in exhortation before the crucifixion many times. We can easily find cases like that in Scripture. And here he's doing that again with Peter, asking him a question that Peter might have a panic attack (laughs) and then has answers honestly he wants us to love as he loves that's from john 13 but he challenges us to go beyond our comfort zones start at phileo brotherly affection grow into agapeo sacrificial love so there's the three of them from earlier slides i think the miracle the meal and then the conversation are all three distinct things that they were used to seeing of Jesus before the crucifixion. And these are proofs to them that this is really him. So to wrap up the rest of the conversation, Jesus talks about how Peter's life is going to end. And um, I think that's fairly self-explanatory. The part about stretching out your hands uh, would represent being nailed on a cross. Um, I'm reading into it a little bit. Peter clearly, uh, or John in verse 19 says, this signified what kind of death he was going to die by. I'm reading into it that his crucifixion. We know from church history that he was crucified. But then Peter, um, okay, so I think Jesus is bluntly helping Peter to count the cost. When he's telling him that, why would he tell him that? Because he's calling him to care for the church, to give up the career of fishing, and there's a cost involved. And he's telling him how he's how he's going to die, and and yet he exhorts him, follow me. In spite of this, follow me. So then Peter asks about John, and 
<laughs> Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about him. So it's decision time. And I think for us, there are similar times like that. As you think about where you are in life, when the Lord is laying something on your heart, don't get distracted, but get going on what the thing is that he's putting on your heart. So in conclusion, the author is eyewitness. We believe it's John. And he says there in the very last verse, there are also many other things Jesus did, which they were written one by one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That leads to wondering, well, why did you pick what you wrote? And he's already answered that at the end of the prior chapter. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Bob was preaching on that last week. I kind of want to end on the combination of those two. Jesus did a lot of things, both before his crucifixion and after. And the phrase that Luke gives that I read from Acts 1, verse 3, it sounds like he appeared a whole lot and did a lot of convincing proofs. And it may well have been much more than just the ten that the Bible lists for us. But these were written that we will believe. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who's also the God of the New Testament, became human in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, an innocent man, not dying for any sins that he committed. Three days later, after being buried, he rose from the dead and appeared to a lot of witnesses. And so where does that leave us? Well, what's your version of fish? What is it that you turn to when you're idle? Do you love Christ more than that? We were talking in Sunday school about longing for the pure milk of the word. I referenced that a little bit earlier. But we were talking about how longing is something that draws you in many ways to the thing you long for. It's not something that you just occasionally turn in that direction. When you long for something, you want it over and over again and in different ways and forms. Do you long for Christ and for what He wants you to do? Or is there a battle there where you're still holding on to your version of the fish? That's worth thinking about. Another question is, how's your love? Are you growing in sacrificial love? Or are you content with just the phileo love? A good measure of that is towards the rest of your fellow believers. Another good measure is your relationship with Christ. That can sometimes be harder to measure. But your fellow believers whom you're seeing every day, they're right there in front of you. In 1 John... The same author here talks about how um, if we love the Father, if the love of the Father is in us, we're going to lo- whom we haven't seen, we're going to love our brothers who we do see. And then last, are you following Jesus? 
What's he asking you to do? If you're following Jesus, there are things he's probably asking of you. It, it, he meddles like that, you know? He just, he's continually trying to get you to grow more in faith, to grow more in your character. So only you know what it is for you, but for each one of us, there's probably things that he's been saying to you in the last week or two, or maybe it's been ongoing for months. It may be decision time, time to move forward with it, to give up whatever you needed to give up, to go forward and grasp whatever he's leading you to go forward and grasp. Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act? We end here. I'll close this in a prayer and then we'll sing one more song. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your care for your disciples and particularly for Peter. He was a leader and you knew that. You had gifted him that way. When he went fishing, the other disciples followed. And we see that when you challenged him to care for the church... He led in that direction, and the other disciples followed. In Acts 2, Peter's the one who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches to the crowd. In Acts 3, it's he and John together when the, when the lame man at the temple entrance is healed, and it's Peter who speaks to him, and the man is healed. And then when they go in and a huge crowd gathers because they know this is the lame guy who was begging outside the temple, it's Peter who stands up and preaches to him. And then when they get arrested, hauled in front of the religious leaders where they're thinking about killing him, executing him for preaching Christ in the temple, it's Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, who speaks. And Father, I just thank you for that example you give us. And you know each of us in the same way that you knew Peter. You know what our gifting is. So not all of us are leaders, but we all have gifts. We have abilities. And you are calling each of us to serve you in one way or another. You, you don't need our help, but you love us. And in love, you invite us to join you in what you're doing. And so, Father, I just, I just ask that you would work in each of our hearts, in each person where they are, if there's anyone here who's not really your child yet, they have not um, truly put their faith in you for forgiveness and, and have yielded to you, I ask, Father, that you would bring that to happen, bring conviction in their lives that they're not right with you. Father, let all of us who are here be committed to you and follow you faithfully. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.